Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now, You do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's go home. (laughs) Oh, our hope as believers. Let's uh, let's pray. Father God, we, we look to you tonight and pray, Lord, that you'd restore to us the joy of your salvation. that you'd build in us more of your hope. Not only to take us higher, but to take us deeper. That it would be that anchor for our souls, sure and steadfast. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us tonight, that right now we would get a deeper, greater, grander understanding of your truth so that our hope would be strong. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. so tonight I want to talk about what, what I'll call our manifold, our manifold hope. And uh, before we get into that, though, I need to just, just clear the air about for a definitional thing. See, as, as Christians, we have a lot of words that we use that the rest of the world doesn't really use the same way. Someone would say, oh, you just got saved, huh? And you go, yeah, so you need to get plugged in. It's time for you to get plugged in. All right, man, are you doing your devos? And we have these things, and we, a lot of times, Christians mock Christians for having what we call Christianese. But in my personal opinion, Christianese, this, this Christian language we use, has gotten a very bad rap. Because in my opinion, Christians must have some words that are just things that Christians use, because we have concepts the world doesn't have. And we have purposes for, for words that the world just doesn't have. And hope is one of those things. I mean, you can think of how Paul coined the word agape in 1 Corinthians 13 and how his, his dissenters might have said, well, you're a little Christianese version of agape. And Paul's like, no, the problem is your worldly version of agape is messed up. And so I'm going to give a new definition for Christians to use. And so hope is a word like this. So I want to define it in the context of Christianity. Hope is, uh, sometimes it's easy to define things by what they're not. Hope is not wishful thinking. This is not what a person means when they say, I have hope in Christ. It's not like, oh, I just hope that Jesus will take me to heaven when I die. I just hope that I'm saved. We do not mean good vibes or good feelings. Now, Christian hope does often cause good vibes and good feelings. But it is not good feelings any more than a steak is the flavor that it causes. The world often talks about hope and only speaks about the flavor of hope or what the feeling of hope. But Christianity is talking about it like the way you talk about, I want a steak. 
I don't just want to taste it. I want to actually have a steak. I want the nutrition and the other things it adds to my body. I want them inside of my stomach and I want to chew them. I want it real. And that's what Christian hope is like. It is real. It means basically some good but unseen thing in the present or future. Some good but unseen thing in the present or future. I think that's a description of Christian hope. Our confidence about some future or present unseen reality, unseen truth. This does not mean, though, that there's no evidence for Christian hope. Some people think, okay, faith is the evidence of things unseen. And they translate that in their brain to mean faith means there's no evidence. And this is completely counter to the Christian worldview. We believe in evidence to support our faith. And um, that's a misapplication of that passage. It just means that you haven't seen it happen, even though you know it will. For instance, some, is there anybody in the room here who's engaged to be married? Yeah, we got a couple over here. Josh and Ash, good job, good job. Way to man up, Josh. Now, you know you're going to get married. It's not as though you're like, I sure hope I get married. This isn't an unrealistic expectation. You confidently expect it's going to happen. But it hasn't happened yet. And there may be someone, some of you mothers who found out with a pregnancy test that you were pregnant. And you're like, I know I'm going to have a baby, but I just I don't see the evidence of it yet. I don't see the evidence. I don't feel my child moving yet in the womb. But you know it's a definite reality. And the same thing for Christian hope. This is stuff that's real and true, and we have a good reason to believe it. Now, as a world, we need hope. We desperately need hope. Do you know... I did some research on the leading cause of suicide, and there's actually very... It's difficult because you can't obviously ask somebody why they did this, but um, it's very difficult to assess what's the cause of suicide. But the one thing in common with most suicides is something called hopelessness or the belief that life will never get better. And that is when the thoughts of suicide come in, that life is never going to get better. It will never improve. So suicide tends to not be about how bad things are, but about a a fear of how bad things will continue to be. Hope tends to project forward and say, I expect a better future. This need for hope, humans need hope, it has actually led people to invent hope when they don't actually have it. I've actually sat at an atheist funeral one time and heard the poems that they read that I don't think they even believed. And it was a very hopeless, very strange, sad event. And I'm I'm grateful that that's not the reality we really live in. But they sort of were inventing some kind of hope. But that hope, invented hope or fake hope or hope based on untruth, disappoints us. But in Romans 5.5 it says, now hope, Christian hope, does not disappoint. As a Christian, my hope is real. I'm I'm not just like, oh man, if I could just get enough Christian good, feel-good vibes coming out of me, then I could have a happy life and then I'll die and find out I was wrong. If we're wrong, it's not hope. It's deceit. If we're right, that's hope. That's hope. What we have in Christ is not a disappointing, fabricated hope like what we often see. In fact, if you go online and look up sayings and quotes about hope, you'll find they're very fluffy and sort of unrealistic, and they don't really help you very much. But if you look into the scriptures, you will find a manifold hope. In fact, not only is Christian hope real, but it is, like I said, manifold. And some of you are thinking of car parts right now, but that's not what I mean. Manifold, the word manifold comes from two words, many and fold. Many folds. 
And the idea is that a Christian's hope is manifold because as you, as you grab hope and you sort of peel off the layers, you see that there's all these facets and different areas and directions. And I have hope in so many things as a Christian. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So I want to talk about our 19 hopes as a Christian because I just brainstormed and came up with 19 from the scriptures. There's many more, I'm certain. But these are the ones I could come up with off the top of uh, my head sort of <laughs> as I was getting ready for the study. So let's just dig in, shall we? The first one of our 19, and I may not get through them all, but that's okay. You've got this textbook right in front of you, and you can look and do it on your own. The first one is hope that in spite of appearances, God will fulfill his promises. There's a Christian hope for you. There's a hope the world cannot claim, but Christians can. Abraham, in Genesis 22 Well, he had been promised that God would use Isaac, his son, to produce all of his future offspring through this son. His grandkids and great-grandkids and so on, all through Isaac. But in Genesis 22-2, God comes to Abraham and tells him something. He says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, whom he has said, your offspring will be through Isaac. Abraham, we find out, was a great man of faith. In fact, Hebrews tells us what he was thinking at this time. You know the story. He went to go sacrifice his son. God stopped him. God never intended for the sacrifice to take place. But while he was in that sort of appearances or deceiving time, where it seems like the promise of God won't happen, here's what he thought. In Hebrews 11, I'll read it to you, verse 17. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, speaking of Genesis 22, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding, here's what Abraham thought, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham's like, God, you want me to to offer my son as a sacrifice, but you've said my son will bring my grandchildren? I guess you'll bring him back to life after I sacrifice him. Abraham was wrong about the way God would work it out, but he was just confident God would work it out. Hope as a Christian that in spite of appearances, God will fulfill his promises to you is a huge deal. Because there are promises that have been maybe just personal to you, that the Lord has showed you personally. And there are also great and precious promises in the scriptures. And no matter how things look in life, you know these things will happen. God is going to do what God said he would do. If he said it, it'll happen. He's God. You have this great hope as a Christian. Number two, the second one is, we have hope in the character and sovereignty of God. We have hope in God's character and sovereignty. No matter what happens in my life as a Christian, I know that it first had to pass through God's throne. Just as even when Job was beat down by the enemy so horribly, before it happened, Job had to get permission from God. God had to take that hedge of protection down in order for it to take place. This is another area where Christian hope differs wildly from worldly hope. Worldly hope is often about getting what you want, achieving your dreams, Do whatever you set your mind to and you can accomplish it and you can be anything you want to be. This is actually like a self-willed piece of bad advice. (laughs) You should not seek to be anything you want to be. As a Christian, I should seek to be whatever the Lord calls me to be. I, I give my life to Christ alone and yet I have all my plans. 
all my agendas and everything I want to accomplish and I'm going to get it done. Well, that's, that's a worldly perspective. The Christian perspective is this. Christian hope is often about getting what God wants and being content because he's good. Because you trust, you have hope in the character and sovereignty of God. If God is good, then I can trust that whatever his plan or his will is, that it's a good thing. That it's better than my plans, better than my agenda. This attitude is like saying, like the old, uh, the old TV show, Father Knows Best. But in this case, it's my Heavenly Father. And He does know best. And I can trust His plan and His will. And so maybe your plans in life won't happen. And as a Christian, I go, like the old song, a uh, secular song actually, sort of, <laughs> says, I, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> I believe it came from a secular musician, but... But uh, I, I heard a story that that song came from him uh, looking upon a, a girl he had wished to marry years later and then said he thanked God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's the truth or not. But I can say this. Some of the things I wished God would do when I was younger, I'm grateful God didn't do now that I'm a little bit older. And when God said no, now I look back and I echo, yeah, Lord, your no was, was, a, good, was a good no. We can trust in the character and sovereignty of God. I like how Jesus put it in, in uh, John 14, verse 1. In John 14, 1, he says this to the disciples. Now, notice they're about to see him crucified. This is like within 24 hours before the crucifixion, this, this moment in John 14. And they're about to be very downcast, very sorrowful. They're, they will no longer be in his presence. It's going to be very difficult for them. And he says in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. The formula goes like this. You have a troubled heart? Believe in me. Not just believe in, oh, but God's going to do this with my circumstance. And God's, God's going to make me rich and wealthy. And if, I guess those are the same thing. And he's going to make me healthy. And he's going to make me this. And he's going to bring me all these benefits. How about you just trust who he is? He's good. Christians have a hope in the goodness of God, in his character and his sovereignty, because like we sing Almighty God tonight, we sang, do you believe he is almighty and good? Then you've got hope, no matter what. Number three, we have hope in the face of certain persecution and an uncertain future. For this, you might want to turn to Daniel 3, Daniel 3, verse 16. It's a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I challenge you to spell their names correctly. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three good Jewish boys who were honorable and served the Lord, they are asked to bow down to a false idol by the government, and they refuse to. And then the king gets really upset and because they're, they're, they're high in government, so he holds them to an even higher standard. And he says, bow down or I'm going to kill you. Bow down to my false image and my false gods. And in Daniel 3.16, we get the response of them. Not only can he kill them, but he's ready to, and it's going to happen momentarily if they don't just bow. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They're not saying we're not going to respond. They're saying we're not accountable to you. We're ultimately accountable to who? God. Loyalty to God before loyalty to government or anybody else for that matter. It says, if that is the case, if you're going to kill us or we bow, 
Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. And then I love what they say next. But if not, <laughs> if not, wait a minute, I thought you had to say it, and, then, and, then, and, you, have to, and you can't deny it because your faith makes it happen. They go, he's going to deliver us. But if we're wrong, they're hedging their bets a little bit, aren't they? We know God's goodness and character. We know the situation we're in. We're thinking he's probably going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, check this out. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Hope in the face of certain persecution and an uncertain future. They weren't sure. We're like, God will take care of us. God will find us a way around that. We're not going to go to prison. We're not going to go get locked up. We're not going to get under this persecution where we're killed. And even if we do, we don't care. We're still going to serve God. That's the attitude they have right there. Now, we know the story. God delivers them from this fiery furnace. And sure enough, that, that's what happens. But I love the heart that they communicate to us about persecution. God can deliver me, and I think he will. But if he doesn't, eh. <laughs> I'm not going to bow down to maybe in modern America, we ought to say this, to government pressure to compromise my obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, we have hope when we are utterly confused and confounded. Hope when we're utterly confused and confounded. Sometimes pain, when life is out of whack, or maybe just attacks on your mind when those things come things can get really confusing. I have a saying that it, well, at least it's my own saying. No one's ever quoted me on it probably, <laughs> but it's my own saying. And I use it in counseling often because people come and they'll tell me a story and then it's like stuff is so confusing. And I, I say, well, sin makes life so complicated and confusing. Whereas godliness makes it so simple. But sometimes life is radically confusing. It is radically out of whack. And maybe pain and suffering and difficulties have you totally confounded. In fact, this might be like because of false expectations. Like Elijah in the book of Second Kings, verse, uh, chapter 18 and 19. Uh, I'm not going to read from the passage. I'll just summarize a little bit of it for you. But in Second Kings, Elijah, he has this incredible victory on Mount Carmel. And he's uh, th- this mountain, right? Not not caramel, I wish, right? But no, Mount Carmel. And he's up there on the mountaintop. And he says, let's test and see which, one, which God is real. Your false God, Baal, you know, or, 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 or the God, Yahweh. You know? And so they test. And God answers by fire. They slay the false prophets. It's this incredible victory. It's like a cleansing moment. And he comes down the mountain. And he's like thinking like, I, I think, in my opinion, he's thinking, yes, this is the moment. This is the moment Israel turns back to God. And nothing happens. Everybody just kind of goes back down the mountain with a neat story. And then he gets a message from Jezebel, the queen, the wicked queen, like a Disney wicked stepmother, who says, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. And so Elijah despairs, and he's just totally down, and he actually says, God, please just kill me. Or maybe like Asaph, the gentleman that wrote Psalm 73 how he talks about how he looked on, and it wasn't, it wasn't the confusions of say, false expectations, but he looks on the world and he sees how the prosperity of the wicked, the wicked are pro- prosperous and then believers are hurting. And him, he's thinking, I, I'm not, my money's not working, health isn't working, nothing in my life is working, but my wicked friends are fine. 
And he was disheartened when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so he says in verse 16 of Psalm 73, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. You ever felt that way about life? Just trying to figure out what is going on hurts. And it's like, it's over my head. I don't get it. Perhaps that's been you. Well, I think as a Christian, here's our hope. Proverbs 3, 5 says this, and I'm just going to quote 3, 5, and I I encourage you not to finish it in your head because I don't want you to miss verse 5 because you know verse 6. When I thought, uh, excuse me, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That is one of my life verses. You know how I learned to trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding? By being confused and confounded. (laughs) By just not being able to piece it all together and not being able to puzzle it out and not being able to figure out what was exactly going on in life. By not not understanding myself or the world around me to just trust in him with all your heart. This is our hope. I'm just going to trust you, Lord. Here's my heart. I'm trusting you with it. I don't know what's going on over there. It's like a little turmoil thing going on here, but fine. I like... What Asaph concluded at the end of Psalm 73 when he realized God's in control, God is sovereign, he's going to tell the end of the story, he's going to write the end of the book. What am I tripping on the way things are today? God will fix it. But he wrote this in verse 26 of Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so he found hope when life was utterly confusing and confounding. If you would, turn to Psalm 131 in your Bibles. I'd like to share this with you. If you don't have this verse underlined, then I recommend it. Psalm 131 seems to be written from the perspective of somebody that gets that he doesn't have to figure everything out to put his hope in the Lord. Psalm 131, verse 1. Lord, my heart is not haughty as though it it, it can figure everything out as though my feelings dictate truth, nor my eyes lofty as though I think I can see everything and I perceive all the angles and I know everything. Neither do I concern myself with great matters nor things too profound for me. Sometimes I don't get stuff. I just don't worry about it. That's interesting, isn't it? Verse 2, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Have you been utterly confused and confounded and it's brought you to a place of disquiet because you think you have to figure it out before you can trust the Lord? Christians have a hope that's bigger than that. My hope doesn't depend on what I can analyze and figure out. And I like to stretch my mind to its absolute limits. But then I like to acknowledge those limits. (laughs) And go, yep, don't know much about that. Yep, don't know much beyond this. Not even entirely sure about everything I do know. But I know the Lord. And my soul is quiet and calm within me, and I don't need to figure it all out. I like the old lyric to the song, uh, which I haven't heard in many years, but it says, I don't know what the future holds, but... I know who holds the future. I like that. The fifth hope we have is the hope of being in Christ. 
the hope of being in Christ. I struggle with how to word this one, but let me, let me read it with you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, back in your New Testament. See, those of you that don't know your Bibles very well, this is good for you. You're, you're, you're getting a, a lot of like foot traffic on the Scriptures. Your fingers are going to build some Bible calluses and everything. And those pages that have never been separated are going, and they're peeling apart for the first time. It's a good thing. Ephesians chapter 1 my hope in being in Christ. This is a wonderful concept. Starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you get all these blessings. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, in theology, we call what this verse is talking about our position, as in position versus condition. And I think it's really special if you can figure out what, these, what this means. So let me take a moment to explain it. Um, your condition is just sort of like your state right now. But your position is where you belong in a different sense altogether. So um, some of you, conditionally, you might be wearing street clothes. But positionally, you have like a fairly high position in some company or some business. And you see the condition versus the position Illustration there. Some of you, you might be distanced from loved ones. Maybe your, your, your mother or father is far away positionally, but conditionally, you are permanently their daughter, their son. There's a difference between your position and your condition. And sometimes a Christian's condition is kind of lousy, but our position is always awesome because I'm positionally in Christ. Even though conditionally, I could be like Elijah, who was up on the mountain going like, yeah, go God, look, God is awesome and sees the true God. And then I, like, I get down the mountain, I'm like, I'm alone now, just kill me, Lord, just kill me. And conditionally, not very impressive, but still positionally in Christ. That same Elijah, God took straight up to heaven in a chariot. The same guy. He didn't change his his position was unchanged by his condition. I, I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Pastor Gary offered an illustration one time that really blessed me, which was using a, a thing of water like this. And, and so if, if Jesus is the bottle and I'm in Christ and I'm the water, and even though the water might be shaken up or disturbed or bothered or flipping out, yet I'm still in Christ. I like that. I like that. And so we, we have the blessing of being in Christ. That God sees me through the lens of me being in Jesus. Which is why the passage I just read said we are holy and without blame before him in love. Now apart from Christ, I am certainly blameable. But in Christ, I'm unblamed for the sins I've committed. I'm holy and able to be near God. And I'm in the beloved, which means God loves me. I have this hope of knowing I'm positionally in Christ. Because, let's be honest... Every one of us knows that we are not the man or woman that we would like to be in Christ. Me too. Me too. And this is why I must be firmly established in what it means to be in Christ so that I do not despair and have the accuser of the brethren beat me down and have me what pull, pull away from church and pull away from fellowship and pull away from the word and pull away from prayer and worship and obedience to God 
because I'm just beat down and have forgotten what it means to be in Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. If you would please turn there with me. Here's another scripture you should definitely underline if you haven't underlined your whole Bible just yet. Hebrews chapter 6. Sometimes you might feel distant from God or feel that your prayers are unheard. Or as one pastor I know used to say, sometimes I feel like my prayers just bounce off the ceiling. And I thought that was an interesting illustration. That they just bounce off the ceiling and come back down unheard. But to, to that, I just, I just ask, have you guys ever felt like it was like, say, you felt, maybe today felt like a Tuesday to you, but it's really Thursday? You ever felt like it was a Saturday, but it really wasn't, it was Friday, you had to go to work anyways? Have you ever at that point just called your work in and said, I don't think I have to work today because I know it's Friday, but I feel like it's Saturday. See, we don't, we don't use this kind of crazy reasoning in the rest of life, but we'll use it with God because, I don't know, that's the attack of the enemy. I don't know what it is. But if I feel like my prayers are unheard and I feel like God has not loved me and I feel like these things, I should just chalk it up to the same thing as when I feel like it's a Thursday, when it's a Monday or whatever. I'm not saying that's easy, but that is the direction we should move in. Hebrews 6 verse 19 says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both, uh, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence the presence of God behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. And we're seeing Jesus has entered for us that we might always be able to enter God's presence. It is called this hope of being in Christ. And that's my access to God that Jesus brings me access to God, that Jesus makes me right with God. This is the basics of salvation, right? But as a Christian, I need to be reminded of this because it is the anchor of my soul. Now, when I looked up, uh, quotes on hope, thinking maybe I'd open with a quote on hope, and I just, I just felt like all the quotes on hope paled in comparison to what the Scripture says about hope. I found them saying like, one of them was saying something like, hope is like, hope is like a feather that flies and flutters. And I'm like, what? The Bible says this hope is like an anchor, and I would much rather, in the turmoil of life, I'd much rather have an anchor. As a boat is in a storm and is tossed all over the place, the thing that keeps it safe and sound and where it ought to be is that anchor. As a boat is just in calm waters and would have a tendency in the, in the calmness of life, in the ease of life, to drift away casually from the shore into dangerous places, this hope is an anchor. I like hope that's anchors, that anchors me. That's nice. This hope is an anchor, and then it's described as being not only an anchor, but also being sure and steadfast. Now, sure, S-U-R-E, means what? It is true. That's what it means. It's sure. It's true. It is definitely real and true, as opposed to false hope. And the steadfast, that word, means that it is unwavering, or it is always true. So it's not only true, but it's always true. I've heard someone say, well, I just love them. I just don't like them right now. Not that I don't understand the sentiment. But the hope of God bringing us to his presence through Jesus Christ is sure and steadfast. That he always lives to intercede for me. That I am constantly okay positionally with the Lord. Now, I may have hurt in my relationship with God through sin. But how long does it take for me to come near to him? Well, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we find that it is us who's drifted, not him. 
There's no lack in the power of Christ to bring us to God. Sure and steadfast. You waver, like Psalm 73 said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So our hope does not waver. So Christians have unwavering, constant hope of a right relationship with God through Jesus. Yeah. That's not so bad. (laughs) Number six. We'll see how far we get tonight. I don't know. Hope in the benefit of suffering. Hope in the benefit of suffering. That is that suffering produces benefit in your life. In 1 Peter 1, it tells us, as the passage we read earlier, that we, if need be, are grieved through various trials. That the testing of our faith, being much more precious than gold, though it perishes, that it was tested through fire, right? That it is going to be seen for glory and honor, praise, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that the suffering I experience now is a refining process in my own life. James 1, it says, Brethren, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. That you may be perfect. And the word perfect, often in Scripture, it's the word mature, complete, full-grown. It's about, it's about growing up, being maturing as a Christian. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so here we are, going through trials. You are, I am. And if you're not going through any trials right now, you're just really not paying attention. That this trial is producing godly character in your life. At least that's the aim of the trial. If you let patience have its perfect work, if you allow it to happen, we have a hope that there's benefit in suffering. And here's the thing. I've got to point this out real quick, and then we'll move on to the next one, number seven. Your temporary suffering is bringing you character, and character is a permanent benefit. And anytime you can experience a temporary pain for a permanent pleasure, it is totally worth it. This is why you can count it all joy. It doesn't mean you enjoy the trial. It means you look hopefully for the benefit of that thing in the future. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in my life, but I believe you'll get me through the trial, and I want to be patient, listen, and learn, and not look at everyone else. Like, look at what they should change. They need to stop being this way, and they should fix this. Instead, go, Lord, what are you showing me? What obedience to Christ needs, there, needs to be in my life through this thing that I'm going through now? How can I honor you, Lord? How can I seek you? How can I wait on you and learn that patience? And that is a permanent benefit, a permanent blessing. So be joyful. What's God working on in your trials? Well, he's working on you. He's working on you. And that's a beautiful thing. Number seven, we have hope. And here's how I'll word this. Forgive me if it's a little bit vague, but hope in the worth of the day. That the day itself was worthwhile. Have you ever had a day where you just, you just wish you could just throw that day away? You could erase it from history? Yeah, I imagine so. Hopefully, you've had few. But 2 Peter 3.9 gives me a principle that I can apply into my Christian hope that would maybe change my perspective on some of those hard days that you've had. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Now, what it's talking about here is, God's not slack or lazy about the second coming of Christ and when he's going to judge the world. It's like, why hasn't he done it yet? It's been 2,000 years. Well, he's not lazy. He's not slack. He's not late. As some count slackness, 
but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the idea here is that God is delaying his coming, the second coming, so more people can get saved. So I'm going to ask you guys if you would do something for me. Just entertain me for a moment. If you choose not to, that's fine. Don't. I don't care. But if you would, just close your eyes. Just close your eyes for a moment. And now what I'd like you to do is picture in your mind a globe. So you, can you picture a globe? And you, and you see, you know, the, you see America on there, and you see the, you know, the United States, you see California. Can you kind of picture where we are here in Bellflower on that globe? Like, right, like point an arrow at it in your head. But now what I want you to do is now zoom out and spin around the world and go over to China. Now, you may have had a bad day, but I want you to open your eyes now as I tell you what happened in China. Millions and millions of people are getting saved in China right now. The gospel has been going out. In fact, missionologists say that between 10,000 and 25,000 convert to Christianity in China every day. Every day. I don't know how many people that is a minute, but that's a lot of people. In 1970, 0.1% of the population of China was Christian. Point one. In 2015, it's right around 10%. That's a big country. And more people are getting saved all the time. No wonder why they're trying to destroy the crosses on the churches right now. Now move in your mental globe over to India. Do you know that in India there's a group called the Dalit, which means the broken ones? And they are, they compromise the majority of the population, but they're, they're the low caste system. They're basically like slaves. The Dalit are getting saved by the millions as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out to them. And they're building schools and they're teaching them and educating them. And it is changing the country. There are more missions and missionaries in India right now than there have ever been in the history of the country. One mission group called Operation Mobilization 10 years ago, had 300 congregations in the country of India. Now they have over 3,000 in 10 years. Calvary Chapel affiliates, at least several years back, were maybe 1,400 churches. They've got over 3,000 congregations in India, just that one group. The church is growing right now. The Christian church in India is multiplying three times faster than the Hindu population can reproduce. And the vast majority of the population is Hindu, (laughs) those that aren't Christian. That is awesome. You know, when you flip in your globe and you go over to Islamic nations like um, uh, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, and you go over to Saudi Arabia, there are reports coming in of people getting saved all over those countries all the time. Even people where the gospel can't go out legally and we can't get missionaries in, how God's just giving them visions. I even had here at Hosanna years ago a gentleman who called the church and said, can I talk to somebody about Jesus? And I, and I was like, yes. Like, no one's ever called asking that question before. I thought, is this a scam? What is this? Well, me and him spoke several times over the next couple of years, probably three years we talked to each other. And um, I, I'll spare the details for his sake, but what I will say is this. He was a Muslim who had asked questions, and he was in a Muslim community, about Jesus. And his family told him, stop asking questions about Jesus. But he kept asking. He was just curious. He was really intrigued by Jesus. They beat him up and crippled him 
After that, he decided he wanted to reach outside of that circle a little further. So he called, uh, well, actually went online and he searched, what is truth on, on uh, some search engine? And, and it popped up with Hosanna's phone number and address and information. So he called the church and I happened to be the guy that picked up the phone and said, Hosanna Christian Fellowship. <laughs> he says, Mike, what can I do for you? He ended up giving his life to Christ. How did that happen? I went on, you know, I, I was curious. I go on the search engine. I'm like, what is truth? And I'm like, we're probably like search result 47,952 on that thing. You know, we're way down there. God just had a plan for his life. He has a way of getting the gospel to people who it's really hard to get the gospel to. And people are getting saved in Islamic countries. They're having visions of Christ. And we're getting reports that come in years later about how this guy got saved and how he started this whole church. And we're like, who preached the gospel to you? And he's like, well, I was in my bathroom and I saw the Lord. We're like, really? Praise the Lord. Awesome stuff. There are waves of salvation going across the country every single day. Every single day since Jesus, his death and resurrection, since the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, every day on this earth, people got saved. And in your worst possible day, in your hardest day, in your ugliest moment in life, people gave their lives to Jesus on that day, and that day was worth it. And Christians have that hope. We have hope in the worth of the day. It is not all bad news. Maybe you need to turn off the news sometimes. <laughs> and just close your eyes and picture a globe. <laughs> and picture the light turning on as people give their lives to Jesus that day around the world. Number eight, we have hope in the cleverness of God. I like this one, the cleverness of God. And forgive me while I geek out for a moment. When I was a little kid, I watched a TV show called Kung Fu with David Carradine. Now, I have not seen the show in probably 20 years, so I can't really tell you what it was like. <laughs> you know, I have your kid memory of a show. For all I know, it was a bad show. I shouldn't recommend it, so I won't. But I do remember this. I remember that this guy would never start a fight. But if anybody ever came to fight him, he would just use their own inertia and everything else to like redirect them into basically beating themselves up. So they would come flying at him with a fist and he'd just kind of turn it into them flying out the window, you know, and it would go slow-mo, like nice, like 1980s style slow-mo stuff going on, you yeah. God is kind of like that. God, I think, has excellent kung fu. Ephesians 1.11 says this about God, that he is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I, I don't think God causes everything, but this scripture clearly does teach that God works everything according to the counsel of his will. In other words, he has an overarching plan and it will take place. So when the world throws at him or someone fights against God, that he ends up using that very thing to accomplish his will. I can think of a, uh, of a missionary from Cuba who one time I heard sharing his story about how the Cuban-run, government-run newspaper in communist Cuba was coming against the local churches and they didn't want the churches to keep growing. So they wrote up a mocking article that said, you know, miracle man in such and such town and about how this gentleman was bringing uh, lies and he was tricking people and pretending to do miracles. And they printed it up in the newspaper to mock and ridicule the local Cuban Christians. He happened to be in the city that this was about. He doesn't even know who the miracle man was, or he doesn't think there really was a miracle man. I think it was just the, some of the newspapers did to, to mock Christians. Well, the Cuban populace read this newspaper in mass. I mean, there's really one newspaper in Cuba, so they all read it. 
and they flooded to the town to meet the miracle man and receive prayer and try to get healing. And so this, this missionary said they just, on Sunday morning, they started early, they would pack the church full of people, they would skip the message, skip the worship, just preach the gospel, people came to Christ, they'd take him out on the lawn for follow-up as they brought in another crowd, and this process went on for several services, for several days in a row, because of all the people flocking to the town, because the Cuban newspaper has no kung fu. God has good kung fu. God is incredibly skilled at doing what he wants with the difficult and ugly and painful things of this world. If he used the worst moment of creation, that would be the rejection of Jesus and the crucifixion of of, of our Savior on the cross at the hands of wicked men. If he used that to achieve the most wonderful thing in all the universe, our salvation, then don't you think he can use your hard situation to bring something good? Romans 8.28 says, And we know, not we wonder, not we hope, wishful thinking, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It all works together for good. And that good involves me. It's going to be good in the long term for me. Now, some of you may say, well, I have to figure out what the good is. Oh, that's what God was doing. I mean, every time I think I know what God's doing, I find out like 10 minutes later that that was a wrong theory. I just quit trying. I'm like, Lord, you all work. I, I just know it all works together. I don't know how it all works together, but you've got some serious Kung Fu skills and I'm just going to trust it. Number nine, we have hope in the heart of God toward us. Hope in the heart of God toward us. As a Christian, I look at the Lord and see his eyes of love for me. It is one of the most impressive things to a new believer when they just stop and just enjoy the fact that God loves them. He loves us. Hope does not disappoint, Romans says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Sometimes our comfort is just from knowing that God loves us. When we don't understand what or why or who, well, we do know the who. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this has happened, but I know who loves me, and I can trust that. Number 10, we have hope that creation will be fixed. In Romans 8, 21 and 22, it says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, and we have hope that the brokenness and the damage of this world will end. Number 11, we have hope in eternal life, in case you forgot about this one. 1 Peter 1.3, the verse I read earlier, said this, Begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Eternal life. Because he lives, I will live. As Jesus says, that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet he shall live. Death is a word to a Christian that needs to take on a new term in Christianese. Death, it's a transition. Death, it's a separation from this world, but a joining into God's very presence. It is not the end of life. This gives us boldness as Christians to know that my life is temporary, that this body that basically is a wound-up clock that is winding down and down and down and down, it's a temporary body. It's what the Bible calls a tent. 
And then Jesus, what he's prepared for us, he calls a mansion. That's good news. We have hope in our eternal life. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then will be brought to pass that saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why, like in Acts twenty twenty four, Paul, speaking about his imminent coming doom, physically, he says, I do not count my life dear to myself. It's not because Christians want to die. It's because we realize that we have something so much better coming. We have eternal life. Number 12, we have hope and forgiveness. Matthew 9.2 says, Then behold, they brought, him to a, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. This is so ironic that they're like, Hey, heal our paralyzed friend. And he goes, You're forgiven. Have cheer. Be joyful. Be hopeful. Be happy. Now, is Jesus being silly or is he instead showing us a radical truth? That though this man is still paralyzed and he's unhealed at this moment, he has more reason to rejoice now than after his legs are fixed. Some of you guys are not yet healed. And all of us, if the Lord tarries, will suffer physical afflictions that will not be healed. And we will go through the very difficult and painful and unpleasant thing called the shadow of death. And I say, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. The Christian's hope goes so far beyond just this life. Number 13, and I think this will be important for some of you guys out here, maybe you gals. Hope in tiredness at doing the right thing. Hope in tiredness at doing the right thing. When you want to quit, when you want to give in, and when you just want to quit trying, and you don't even want to have a plan for what happens next, whether it's in serving the Lord, in your marriage, with your kids, with family, with friends, in your job, or maybe in a ministry, and you just want to give up and stop, in fact, some of us spend the majority of our time on the verge of quitting. Which is why the scripture says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, after telling us about our certain future and the resurrection and the, the eternal life we have as Christians, it says this, Therefore, or here's the conclusion, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is why my philosophy of ministry is don't quit. And that means in marriage, with kids, with friends, with family, in your prayer life, in your commitment to honor the Lord in your job, 
don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't get lazy. Don't relax. Press on. We have hope in tiredness because our labor is not in vain in the Lord. As it says in Galatians 6, 9, and please hear me on this. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We just haven't reaped yet. That's it. And as, as my friend, uh, Pastor Manny, said to me one time, he goes, Mike, we don't look for fruit while we're still planting seeds. And I was like, ooh, that's good. <laughs> we don't look for fruit while we're still planting seeds. As a Christian, when should you expect the fruit? When you die. That's when. As a youth pastor, I've learned that you start to see some of the fruit of your ministry right around, I don't know, six years or so. But that's not the real fruit. You get to see your fruit when you see the Lord, and you get to see the treasures in heaven that the scriptures constantly talk about. There's a reason for that. Do not grow weary in well-doing. You have not reaped yet. I like how Dory put it, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't stop. Never quit. Because we have real hope. And the labors you do for the Lord, whether you see the fruit of it, just your labor in the Lord shall not be forgotten. And the Lord has a treasure for you for that. And that is very exciting to me. Number 14. See how far I can get. We have hope for a great reunion. I am so stoked about this fact. According to the Bible, as Christians, we're all one. But we don't always act like that, right? And so sometimes I have believers who I simply cannot get along with. And, I, and maybe it's me, maybe it's them, maybe it's both, probably. There are misunderstandings. Maybe I've hurt them. Maybe they've hurt me. But I simply cannot seem to really fellowship with this person. And I want to. They're my brother or sister in Christ. And it's just not happening. And I don't know why. Maybe I know why, but I'm not fixing it. There are other people who you can't fellowship with because of distance. Maybe they moved away. Maybe your best friend just doesn't live here anymore. Maybe they're just gone. Location-wise, you just don't get a fellowship with them. There are others who you're separated from by time because maybe they just, like, I, I think me and Paul would have got along. At least I think we would have got along. Maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't have liked me at all. I don't know. But I feel like, oh, man, I wish I could have known some of these awesome saints of the Lord in the past and spent time with them and fellowship with them and be around them. And then there are others who we are separated from through death because we have not seen them in years or maybe even weeks. But they're separated from us because they have passed into eternal life and we have not. And we're on the wrong side of eternity. But according to the Bible, there is a great reunion coming. And check this out. We will be one. Their flesh will no longer get in the way of your friendship with them. That's amazing. We're going to be friends. We're going to get along. It's going to be fine. The oneness that Jesus prayed for in John 17 will finally be realized. You will not look in heaven at somebody who laughs at your joke and think, they're not really laughing. They really think this about me. There's not going to be any suspecting of people's evil motives or malicious behaviors or insincerity or lack of love because none of it will be there. But here's something that I think gets even better. Number 15, our hope for the removal of our stinking, rotting flesh. 
1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. This flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I say, praise the Lord. Because if I went to heaven in this condition, I would ruin the place. And when I say flesh, and when it says flesh in 1 Corinthians 15, it's talking about our sin nature. I'm not as I ought to be, but I will be as I should be one day. When I go to heaven and get a new body, I am not going to be tempted by the flesh ever again. Not even tempted. It won't be a heaven will not be us resisting temptation forever. It'll be us not experiencing it and just enjoying God's wonderful creation. My own presence will be nice. Finally. This I am incredibly stoked about because I am fully aware of the fight against the flesh and my own sin nature and the constant issues that it provides because this guy has caused more trouble than anybody else ever has for this guy. Number 16, we have hope that God gets the final word, that God is the judge who gets the final word. Now, as you look around the world and you see things like the Supreme Court ruling recently and you see stuff like uh, the, the, the media misrepresenting things that are moral, important moral issues, like, say, abortion and things like that, and uh, you, you, you see America aborting. I mean, I, I could go down the list, right? How many of you guys get angry? Anybody? I get angry. I mean, I don't have to get in the flesh about it, but man, I get angry. That's righteous anger. I think it's righteous to be angry like that. Now, what you do with it might not be righteous. <laughs> but I think the anger itself is righteous. And perhaps you are rightly upset about those things. But can I encourage you in the, with this? God's going to deal with all that stuff. That was what messed up the guy Asaph in Psalm 73, right? He looked at the world, saw the prosperity of the wicked and the ungodliness of the world. And it just, oh, it just made him so upset. But then in Psalm 73, verse 17, here's his experience. He says, I was upset. I was confounded. I was confused. I was in despair. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. In other words, God will deal with the ungodliness that is going on in the world. And I have hope in that. There is no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but there is most certainly pleasure in the stopping of the wicked that God is going to do. And we have that hope. God wins. Number 17, we have hope for vindication in your life of following Jesus. I don't know about you, but I was the only one in my family following the Lord. My mom would say, now, now she's walking with the Lord. But at the time, when I was younger, she would say, I don't know why you have to go to church so much. Constantly, I heard the same statements. People try to talk me out of it. They'd come up with an idea, and they try to convince me that it was wrong. They'd say, well, you know, I think religion's good, but Mike, I think you're taking it a little too far. And I'm like, either it's true, and you should follow it, or it's not true, and you should not pretend, like, one way or the other. I think all in or all out is a great way to treat beliefs. Either this thing's really dangerous or it's really safe and you should go enjoy it or you should avoid it. Like there's truth is truth. But there is a time coming where according to Philippians, every 
knee will bow at the name of Jesus, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As it says in Revelation, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, we don't enjoy punishment of the wicked, but I enjoy that the truth of God will be vindicated, that finally it's like no more lies, no more misconceptions, no more uh, Wikipedia articles with false information to defame Christ. The truth will win out. Number 18. Wow, we're almost done. We have hope in the presence of God. Now, Hollywood portrays heaven all the time. If you notice this, Hollywood will do portrayals of heaven that are often strange and always unbiblical. But one thing is consistent if you think about movies and shows and cartoons you've seen where they portray heaven. One thing is almost always consistently missing. That is God. They actually portray heaven without God. This is consistent. It's like, what an offense, but just how inaccurate is this? But let me tell you, the most glorious thing about our hope is that we get to be in the presence of God. Psalm 16 describes what it's like to be in his presence. Let me read it to you. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, speaking of death. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's presence is described as, I quote, fullness of joy. Now, how much joy are you capable of experiencing? Expect it to be completely filled. Fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasure? But I thought pleasure was bad. Like, no, that was just those weird monks back in like the 16 or 1500s or whatever. No, we're talking pleasure's beautiful. Like every time I eat in and out, I'm like, pleasure, you know, this is good. And at God's right hand are pleasures for eternity. We got hope with God's presence. In his presence, I will be utterly satisfied. Now, I've had times on this earth where it seemed to me as though I felt God's very presence, and it very much felt like utter satisfaction and total joy. Uh, I think that's just like the trailer for the movie that's to come. You know, It's just the preview. It's the sample. It's like those awesome Chinese restaurants at the mall where they give you like the little bit of chicken and you're like, Ooh, I want more of that. You know, and it's like the flavor of what's to come. Number 19, the last one I'm going to cover tonight. We have hope for a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. According to 2 Peter 3.13, it says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look, here's what we're looking for, anticipating... For new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's going to be sweet. I don't think there will be locks in heaven. Passwords. Secrets. In fact, in heaven, according to Revelation 21, we will, in God's presence, have every tear wiped away. He will wipe away every tear. Now think about this. I don't think this is literal. Like... Like, most of my tears have already dried up at this point. (laughs) 
So what is meant by the idea that God will wipe away your tears? I believe that it means that God will simply resolve every issue that has made you sorrowful in the past. There is no longer reason to sorrow over the past. That's why it says he wipes away every tear. The soul pain of the past is resolved finally. Also, it says there'll be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. So the soul pain of the past is resolved, but there'll also be no sorrow in the future. There's no more crying. There's no more reasons to cry added up in the future. And there is no more pain, the scripture says. In other words, it will be so much better than this. Which is why the scripture says that it is not worthy to compare our present trials and struggles to the glory that's coming. No matter how bad it's been, it's not worth even comparing to what's coming. When you've been in heaven for even 10 minutes, you won't even care about how hard it was on earth that Tuesday. Or even for those 10 years. Because God will have wiped away the tears and it will be glory in his presence. Now, God calls us, according to this Christian hope, to respond. So if you would please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is supposed to be our response. After 1 Peter, he talks about our hope, our, our great and precious promises. Here's our response. Verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this incredible hope we have. And here's our prayer. Lord, whether or not our hearts are uplifted by the facts of the hope, may we respond in faith by resting our hope fully upon you. Because for every reason, we can look to you with hope. We can have this confident expectation of good things to come. This comfort in difficult trials and tribulations, this inspiration to press on no matter how hard it gets, this, uh, these great and precious promises, Lord. And so we pray this, Lord, help us now to be Christians who are steadfast, who live based on faith, not feelings, who live based on hope, not uh, wishful thinking, who live in ways that please you, Lord, to cleanse ourselves from the flesh, and be lights and salt in this world, serving Christ in every way until he comes, until our hope is fulfilled. And we do thank you. We rejoice in, this, in, the, in the manifold hope, Lord, that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.
reflections here Then your spirit speaks Whispers in my ear Telling her forgive.